Welcome to the Shoreline Community Church Podcast, a community of love, acceptance, forgiveness, and belonging. For more information, be sure to check us out online at shorelinecc.com. Today, we're continuing our all-in series, our all-in series, and uh, I tell you, this is something I've really been enjoying. It's something that stirred my heart, and I, I, I think the, those two words, all-in, they go back to uh, the first book I ever downloaded on Kindle. Remember when Kindle was a brand new thing? Now, we're, most of us are on, are on Kindle. Um, the first book I ever got on Kindle was a book by Mark Batterson called All In. And it was one that just really stirred me. I think it was back in 2010 when I downloaded that book. Uh, the choir bought me this Kindle for Christmas. And I was like, what's this for? I, I, I have books. And as I walked through it, I just began just really lean into it, got that book, and it just challenged my heart. And it challenged me in so many ways. And if you've been with us, we looked at one of the first things that happens with going all in is we have this opportunity. All in begins with this opportunity that God gives us, an opportunity to follow him. And then in week two, we talked about how when, when you go all in with anything, whatever it is, what are you going to face? Op, op, opposition. We even put it up on the board for you. Week two, all in brings what? Opposition. Guaranteed. You go all in with anything. At some point, the excitement is going to wear off and you're going to face opposition. And then in week three last week, we talked about how all in brings order. And this was the establishing of the law. This was guiding our past. We know in everything that we do, there's disciplines that whether we're studying in college or we're studying for a craft, whatever it is, there's a way of doing things. And there's a way that God has laid out for us to follow him. So all in begins with order. This week, we're talking about how all in brings the temptation to compromise. Now, temptation is something that's normal. It's something that we all experience. When we look at uh, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, there was 40 days in the desert where Satan approached him and tried to tempt him to get him off track. And, 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 and as, as we think about compromise, and as I was, was looking at this area of temptation, uh, I just began thinking about how, for me, throughout my life, one of the areas that's been a temptation for me in an area of compromise has been in the area of my eating. How many can relate with your attempt to, to eat? things, right? Now, is eating bad? No, you need to eat. <laughs> Eating's important. It's important to have a healthy relationship with food. Uh, we need to eat, but as, a ki- as for me, as a kid, food meant love, right? I was, a, yeah, everyone, yes, right? Still does. Uh, still does in a lot, in so many ways, but my mom, I was the last of eight kids, grew up in northeastern Canada, way out there, and most of our food uh, except when I, when I would go fishing with my dad, it, it, it didn't come out of a can. It, it was like scratch cooked. Every Saturday, our home was filled with the smell of bread. My mom made white bread, and then she made cinnamon raisin bread, which was from the Lord. She made molasses buns and biscuits. Uh, and so it was just, I'd come home from, from school sometimes, and I'd smell this, and she would hand it out to me, and I felt the love of my mom in that moment. And it, that, 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 was, that, was, that was my love language. Unfortunately, as a result, by the time I was in sixth grade, I was 80 pounds overweight. Now, yeah, right? So as a, as a sixth grader, I should have only weighed 80 pounds. I was 80 pounds overweight. And in elementary, in the area I grew up, maybe the same for you, in, in elementary, no one cared what I looked like. No one cared that I was overweight. I played with all my friends. I had, you know, best friends. We did sleepovers and we did campouts and all kinds of stuff. And no one cared that I was 80 pounds overweight until I hit junior high. You know where I'm going? Do you know that junior hires can be mean to overweight people? Yeah. Right? I know. It's, it's all, I'm bringing up some pain in your life now, aren't I? Okay? So, 
But when I hit seventh grade, and for me, that's when it was a big change. That's when, when new kids start coming in. I went from this group that I'd been with, you know, for the first, you know, kindergarten, and then six years, seven years. Then I get to seventh grade, and everything is changing now. Now, all of a sudden, I started experiencing things that I really hadn't experienced before. I experienced bullying. I experienced friends of mine that started leaving me because they didn't want to be around someone who was so gross and 80 pounds overweight and, and all these things. And these were new things for me. And I was trying to walk through, what is that, how do I walk through this? And I'll never, I'll never forget. And if I have hockey tears, it's just, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's from this. But I, I'll never forget, my seventh grade teacher, she saw me. And I want to say this is an encouragement for all of you to look. And she didn't just see me, but she saw the pain, and she stepped in. And here's what she said. She said, Dwayne, you know, um, I've been thinking, I, I need to get control of my health. She said, I need control of my health. She, she didn't put it on me. She, she said, I want to get control of my health, and I'm wanting to lose weight, you know? She said, would you walk with me in this and kind of help me in this, you know? And I was like, you know what? I need to get control of my weight as well, <laughs> you know? And I walked with her, and so we would, we, we would get together over, over lunch once a week, and we would weigh each other. We'd talk about ways to get healthy, ways to eat things, whatever. Long story short, I lost 80 pounds by the time I went to eighth grade and got involved in athletics, went to a lot of camps, and just really turned turn things around. And, and in, in all of this, I, want, I, I bring this up from the standpoint of compromise because for me in this moment, I was willing to make a big change in my life, in my love, how I perceive love, all those things taking, because the pain of, of staying the same was greater than the pain of change. Have you heard that before? Some of the biggest catalysts in our life happened when the pain of staying the same, it was too painful to stay in what I was in, right? I lost friends, I was being bullied, so many other things, my self-worth, and my goodness, I mean, if, if you are not praying for junior hires already, you need to add every junior hire, every junior high teacher, every junior high um, coach, leader in your prayer list. Very difficult time. But for me, the pain of staying the same was greater than the pain of change. And so I moved forward in that way. And I really didn't, didn't really struggle with my weight as I went through high school, went through college, went through all those things. And I thought, well, hey, I've got weight licked until I experienced a new stress. New stress for me was I became a pastor. And I have people that go, well, being a pastor is easy, right? All you do is just you, you read the Bible all day and you show up on Sunday and everyone tells you how great you are. <laughs> uh, if you're experiencing that, I hope you keep experiencing that. Um, but I don't know anybody who does. Because as a pastor, and I'm, I'm, not say, I'm not speaking for myself, I'm speaking for all pastors all leaders, that you don't just carry your own stress situations, but you carry the stress of a community. You take the criticism of a community. You take all those things in, into account. And so guess what happened in, my, in, in the first church that I was on staff at? I gained almost 80 pounds, like between 60 and 80, 80 pounds again, because that's how I medicated. I mean, I was, I was young. You know, I should have been out enjoying things and, and having a, a great time in the city that I was in. And it was a wonderful church. It was a very, very encouraging church. But the stress of it, managing it, um, you know, we have much, we're a lot better at teaching on stress and managing it and what that means. But the stress management back in the 90s for me was suck it up, buttercup, and just move on, right? And uh, that doesn't work. <laughs> that doesn't work. So as I move forward, I began going through, and I think for us, as we look at this days, it's important to recognize because I think as we've walked through, many of us, we've encountered new stresses, and often when you experience a new stress, you go back to old comforts, don't we? 
An old comfort for me, I learned how to bake cinnamon raisin bread. I would toast it. I would put cheese whiz on it. And don't judge me until you try it. But be careful because it will put a hook in you so deep that you will not be able to get that hook out of your mouth. <laughs> right? But you, you go back to those old comforts, those things, those battles that you thought that you had won. They start coming up again, right? And as we come through, these happen, at, these happen when we start school. You go to school, you experience the stress of learning and homework, or, or maybe when, when, like in parenting, right, you, there's a new child in your home, or, or maybe a new job, or maybe you've heard of something called COVID. How many gained COVID-19 pounds, right, going through? I mean, all these things that cause us to go back. And here's the thing we need to recognize, that whenever we go all in with something, there's excitement in the beginning, but eventually we get tired. The new smell wears off. When you buy a new car, you're like, this is wonderful. And then after a couple of years of payments, you're like, this old thing, what's happening to it? You know, there's, there's, a, uh, there's a point in time when we get tired and, and it feels like things aren't working for us. And I think we often have the biggest struggle when it seems like we're doing everything right. We're eating the right things. We're avoiding the right things but it seems like things aren't getting better. I'm praying, Lord. I'm reading, Lord. I'm, I'm going to church every week, Lord. But when it seems like we're not getting the results that we expected, or things are there, this is when we can lose sight of the opportunity that God has given us. And it's in those moments when we feel alone that we're often tempted to compromise, to revert to old ways, to bring up those old hidden habits this is what was happening here in Ezra 9. And it's one of the things that we're going to address today, but I want you to hang with me because this is not just a word to the children of Israel. This is a word to all of us. Wherever you are today, maybe you're at the beginning of that, maybe you're in the middle of it, or maybe you feel like, I'm finally losing weight again. <laughs> Wherever you are, I pray that the Lord would speak to you in this and that the Lord would speak through you because God is heading us into a season that as we go all in, this is an area that we need to not be surprised when it comes. But the Lord has empowered us. So can we just pray for that today? So Lord, we thank you because, Lord, you reveal and you speak and you show. And how many times did you tell your disciples, don't be surprised when this happens to you. But fear not, for I've overcome the world. So speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Let our dependence be on you. May we let everything that we rely on be on you today. Speak through me, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. My Lord, my rock, my redeemer. And everyone said together, amen, amen. Here we go. Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. It says, when these things had been done, the Jewish leaders came to me and said, many of the people of Israel and even some of the priests and Levites have not kept themselves separate from the other people living in the land. They have taken up the detestable practices of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and Amorites. Wow. For the men of Israel have married women from these people and have taken them as wives for their sons. So the holy, right, holy race has become polluted by these mixed marriages. Worse yet, the leaders and officials have led the way in this outrage. When I heard this, Ezra says, I tore my cloak and my shirt and I pulled hair from my head and beard and I sat down utterly shocked. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel came and sat with me because of this outrage committed by the returned exiles. And I sat there utterly appalled until the time of the evening sacrifice. 
At the time of sacrifice, I stood up from where I'd sat in mourning with my clothes torn. I fell on my knees and lifted my hands to the Lord my God. I prayed, oh my God, I am utterly ashamed. I blush to lift up my face to you, for our sins are piled higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, we have been steeped in sin. That is why we and our kings and our priests have been at the mercy of the pagan kings of the land. We've been killed, captured, robbed, and disgraced just as we are today. Just as we are today. So as we head into this today, as we continue our series, and this actually wraps up Ezra, and the next week we begin with the book of Nehemiah. I think it's important to, first of all, recognize what's happening here. So what's happening? As we read this, as we come across, maybe you're confused. And I think a lot of people, when they look at this question, they ask, is intermarriage wrong? Is God saying that intermarriage is wrong, that there should be no mixing of the nations, right? That a Canadian married a Texan is just wrong. I mean, you shouldn't, just, you shouldn't do those things. Those are, those are very wrong. And unfortunately, my, my wife is Texan. I'm Canadian, by the way. So. Uh, some have taken this out of context to mean that interracial marriage is wrong. And I want to say from the start, that's totally false. That is totally false doctrine. That's not what is being talked about here. What the Bible is addressing, uh, it's, the Bible is not addressing a mixing of nations. The Bible is addressing a mixing of religions, a watering down, a compromising of who God is. See, throughout Scripture, we actually see an invitation for people from other nations and religions to turn from their false gods and to turn to God. Not just in the New Testament, but we see this in the Old Testament. And there's a long list, and I'm going to go through it just, 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 just very quickly, just a, just a few, few call-outs of how in the Old Testament we see people being called from their false gods to turn to God. This was true of Melchizedek in Genesis 14, of Jethro. Jethro was the Midianite father-in-law of Moses. We see it with Balaam, we see it with Caleb, the great hero of Judah. Uh, we see this with Rahab, the Canaanite prostitutes. We, we see this with the, the Gibeonites. We see it with Ruth, the Moabite. Uh, we see it with Obed-Edom. We see it with the Queen, with the queen of Sheba, the widows of uh, 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 Zarephath. We see it with the Samaritans in 2 Kings. We see it with Job. Uh, we see it in the Psalms. David continually uh, throughout the Psalms talked about how all the nations will praise you, how all the nations are called to worship God. Uh, one of my favorite accounts is the account of Jonah where the sailors, the, the sailors threw Jonah into the sea because they feared Yahweh and the people of Nineveh who turned their heart back, to, who turned their heart to God. And throughout the prophets, especially Isaiah, we see Isaiah uh, speaking of the nations following God in the future. So, so this, this is not about just being isolated and the rest of you can just do whatever. No, that's not what we're talking about. And it's important to recognize that as it relates to the Jewish nation, that the point and the purpose of the Jewish nation was they were to be a people who were set apart for God. They were meant to be a nation that was to show the world who God is so that the world would come to know and follow God. And this, this is consistent throughout the Old Testament. So, why were the Jews forbidden to marry people from other nations? Well, to understand this and to look at this, we need to first understand that, that biblically, the, the process of marriage biblically is two people becoming one. Marriage is not about a king establishing his kingdom, right? We see how that's going really bad right now. Marriage is not about one usurping authority of the other. It is about the two becoming one. And just like there's no I in the word team, 
There's no I in Mary's. Now, I know there's an I in the word Mary's, okay? We, we don't spell it different in Canada, but I'm talking about a principle, right? Even though, say, we about, and we, we spell color different, but that's a whole other thing. But what we're talking about is that biblically, marriage is this covenant re- relationship. That's why one of the big, hardest things to do in a marriage is to die to yourself, and, when we, and so many times when, when we have this, 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 this illustration of our, our, our relationship to Jesus, it uses this illustration of marriage. Because it's the whole, whole idea of that when I married Stephanie, I died to myself. I die for her. I serve her. And she does the same for me, for it to work. Now, there were ten rough years in there that we had to kind of work through some of that stuff. But we worked through it through the power of the Lord. It's a covenant relationship. It's one where we are unified with each other on the foundation of God, established by God. That's why one of the things that I require for every couple that I marry is we will do premarital counseling. My son, oldest son Riley is getting married this summer, and I said, I will not do your premarital counseling, <laughs> but you need to get premarital counseling. And I gave him a bunch of names of some really cool pastors in the area. Go to them. Go to them. And find it. Because you need it. You need to lay the foundation right. You need to make sure there's a good understanding of what marriage is. Because often in those times, there are things that come up where you're not on the same page. And you've got to get on the same page. How many married people say, that's so important. There are things that you will fight over. Uh, see, marriage, the process of becoming one, uh, there are buttons that would be pressed that you didn't even know you had that button. <laughs> what are you going to do when that gets pressed? Have I ever pressed any of your buttons? She, she said same thing, but I think I got the better deal, right? So, all right, yeah. Button, button, who got the button? We all got it and we're all pressing it. But it's a beautiful thing because through God, when we get on the same page, you know, it's challenging because it addresses those areas of our life, but through God, it's a healing process. It's a healing process. But that's not what's happening here. And there's a long history here. See, The Jews were marrying people from other nations and they were adopting their worship and their practices from their false gods. This was something to where they were being changed. It was was enemies being infiltrated. And we even see this previously where it was actually a tool that was used by the enemy. I mean, think about Samson and Delilah intentionally because relationships are so important to us. They were violating their commitment. They were violating their covenant relationship with God. And again, as, as you look at this, what's going on, the surrounding nations, these were enemies of God. They weren't just disagreeing, but these were nations that were actively defying God and the work that he was doing through the nation of Israel. There was nothing hidden about this. It was very overt in what they were doing. So why, why were the Jewish people tempted? Knowing this and seeing this, they heard all the stories. They heard all the examples of how their enemies often use these ways to go about, why were they tempted? Well, first of all, it wasn't a lack of information. I would say for us, we don't have an information problem, right? We don't have an information, we have more information. It's often a challenge to find the right information, but we are in an information age, and back then, it was very clear. The warnings and the teachings couldn't be any clearer on this. It was forbidden in the law of Moses. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter seven, and the history was filled with examples. So why were they tempted? Like all of us, There was a hunger for relationship. Relationships matter to us. We were not made to be alone. We we flourish in God-honoring relationships. 
See, they'd been in exile, slavery, for 70 years. We're all hungry. This is the natural desire. That's why God said when, 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 he, created, when he created Eve, he said it's not good, not good for man to be alone. But unfortunately, in unhealthy relationships, the cost of many relationships is what? Assimilation. I put that word in there for all the Star Trek fans, right? You will be assimilated. See, the temptation in every relationship that we des- that is that we have a desire to fit in. We all go back to junior high. I just want to fit in. I just want to have some friends. I just, I just want to be with people. I'm tired of being alone. I'm tired. I want, I want someone to love me, and I, I want to love somebody else. But unfortunately, when we have this setup where a relationship is all about just fitting in and just about agreeing with the other person and taking it on, we often hear this statement, if you really love me, then you will. How many have heard that before? How many have said that before? (laughs) Right? If you love me. Those are the words of Delilah to Samson. See, love and acceptance have been twisted to become agreement and endorsement. And if you don't agree with me, you're not for me. So forget you, right? But it's important to remind ourselves that this is so dysfunctional. This is so destructive. Because after all, if you were to agree and endorse everything that I did, what that would mean is that I was perfect. So agree with everything, right? So Stephanie, just everything I say, right? Day one from marriage, I want you to know my mom told me I'm perfect, which my mom did not tell me I was perfect. She was very, very honest, brutally honest, lovingly, but honest. <laughs> but if I went to Stephanie and said, okay, everything I say, that's just it. What, what that is saying is saying that I'm perfect, but it's also saying, and you're not. In any relationship, isn't it? If everything I say is right and you disagree, well, that just means that you're wrong. You're not perfect. You're, you're not there. And the challenge in that is because you're really setting yourself up as God. Right? When it was asked of Jesus who was good, Jesus said, there's only one person who's good, and that's God. See, the fact is that I'm not perfect, and you're not perfect. There's only one God, and it's in this process that we go through. That's why we operate as teams. There's leadership, but there's teams, and I'm accountable. I'm accountable to the Shoreline Community Church Board. And there are systems that we've set up as a church to make sure that. And not only that, I'm accountable to the Northwest Ministry Network. And not only that, I'm accountable to the Assemblies of God. There's classes, there's tests, there's things of, I'm highly accountable, there's people in my life. And then there are other people that I just get together with regularly and we just talk about stuff. Why? Because I'm not perfect. And I know you're like, well, duh. But we need to walk that out and live that out because sometimes we can behave like we're perfect. Sometimes we can behave. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying to walk around with your head hanging low and that you don't have any good ideas or that you never have the right answers. We need to be confident but not arrogant. We need to make sure that in walking this out that we don't live this way, that we don't treat people this way. I need people in my life who I love and who I trust who are filled with the power of God that can speak truth. And Stephanie is one of those primary people. I need that. We need that because the question is not... Will we get off track? We will get off track because we're in a broken world and we're going to get hurt. There's going to be hang-ups and habits, things that we have. See, following God's track and following God's path, it will cause us at times even to be different from the world. And that's a whole new stress that will come about in our lives. Different from the culture that we are in. 
And I think a lot of times this is one of those stresses too. And it's one of the things that they face but that we face today. But we need, as we experience the stress, we need to remember that we are not, as followers of Christ, we are not called to be the same. We are called to be different. There should be something different about somebody who's following Jesus and somebody who's not following Jesus. There should be a mark on your life. There's something different about you because, because think about it. When you give your life to Christ, you are kneeling down and saying, God, I give everything to you. I, I recognize I'm sinful. I recognize that without you, I'm nothing. I give it to you. Fill me and transform me. And then in that moment, we are now forgiven. That's been removed from us. But now Jesus said that my presence fills you. And then there's a secondary empowerment from the Holy Spirit that fills us and enables us. It gives us discernment and to walk in the power to where Jesus said, as a follower now of Christ, you will do even greater things than me. Don't you think that person should look different than somebody who doesn't even acknowledge God or rejects God? There's a mark on that. That's why back when we, the word Christian came out, it was from people who knew what Christ was like, and they looked at him and they said, you are like Christ. They knew they were not like Christ, but they said, you're like Christ. We should be different. We should be different. There should be a visible mark. Now, we need to love our neighbor. We need to make sure that we know them and that we're engaging, okay? Because if you're being a jerk, that's not a Christian. We need to know. We need to be in the world, but not of the world. We need to be salt and light to the world, but we need to make sure that we are, that we're not just hanging out with people. There's a difference. And often that's where the tension comes. Because if we're not careful, if we're just trying to fit in, there's a difference in having good manners and just trying to fit in. If we're just trying to fit in, we'll fall victim to compromising. And if we compromise who we are in Christ, we have nothing to offer. We have no hope to offer. There's no power in us from Christ to offer. See, Jesus didn't sacrifice himself to make you a little nicer. Jesus didn't lay his life down just to make you a better version of who you are. Jesus died to completely transform you. Jesus died to completely transform me, to renew me, to fill me with his presence, and to empower me to do the great things, the greater things for his glory. That's why Jesus died. And when I try to hide it, when I try to step back from that, I'm cheapening the the cost of, of Christ. I'm cheapening the grace that's been poured into my life. I am forfeiting an opportunity that God has given me to, to walk forward. This is who God's called me to be. That's why we sang earlier, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. I follow you, God. But that's the tension. That's where the temptation, because why? We're lonely. We're tired. We're walking and we're saying, God, it doesn't seem like it's working. Jesus is saying, wait for me. Allow me to to work this out in you. There's a plan. God sees everything. We only see a little bit. So I should trust God and say, yes, I trust you. I'm walking with you. See, one of the biggest reasons why people give up eating healthy is because they're like, well, things aren't responding the way that I used to. I'm still sore when I go skiing. What's happening here? I've been eating healthy for a week. But studies show when you keep going, when you keep walking in the ways, there's a healing process that's taken in your body, and sometimes your body needs to rest to heal. But if you keep going, you keep committed to it, you will get healthy. If you just stay at school, if you just stay at whatever that passion, that craft that you're in, if you just, those people around you, you should keep praying for them. There's a time when there's a wait, there's a processing, but God is over that. God brings the growth, but he said, just keep water, keep, keep planting, 
keep being alive in me. This is where the power of Christ comes out. So how do we resist the temptation to compromise? <laughs> how do we resist the temptation to compromise? Well, one of the things that Jesus often talked about is he talked about the cost. First of all, we need to consider the cost. Before you do anything, right? Hopefully, you're never buying a car without looking at the price tag. <laughs> there are those who have. Hopefully, you're never signing a rent agreement without going, how much is this a month? What's the utilities on this, right? We, we do this for so many areas of our life. How much does it cost? See, Jesus said there's a cost to fall in Christ. He said in Luke 14, he said, if you want to be my disciple, you must by comparison, hate, which means let go of everyone else. And here's the things he said to let go of. Let go of father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. What he's saying, he's saying, give it all to me. Give it all to me. He said, otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? He says, otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money, and then everyone will laugh at you. Because you didn't count the cost. See, Jesus is saying, if we want to have this life to the full, one filled with the power of, of Christ, responsive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, impacting the world that we live in, we need to count the cost of having that impactful, influential life. We need to count the cost. There's a cost to it. Now, what we get for what we pay is so much more, but we need to be willing to let go of everything, not just keeping things. It's let go of everything. God, it is yours. Because if not, we will be easily knocked off track when things come. And this type of life, this life of influence, this life of impact, it has a cost. And the cost of influence is criticism. Anybody here ever been criticized? See, the cost of influence, wherever it is in your life, will always be criticism. There will always be those who criticize you, plan on it. That's why so many people have gotten off of social media because they were just sick of it, right? In fact, if you're not being criticized, it probably means that you're not moving. You're not, you're not doing anything, right? I'm just sitting here safe. I'm just like the person with the talent. I'm, just, I'm burying the talent and hiding it because I don't want to blow. I don't want anyone to criticize me. I'm just playing it safe. But here's the thing. Eventually, you'll even be criticized because you didn't do anything. <laughs> that guy's not doing anything over there. Look at him. Here's what I would say to you. Some insights on critics. Do you know that the loudest critics are often spectators who themselves are doing nothing? Some of the biggest critics in my life have been people that are doing nothing. That's why, and they have a lot of time on their hands. And they're spending it criticizing you. <laughs> have you ever looked online and went, go, and seeing some, some trolls and people like they're just criticizing everything, you're like, man, how do they have the time to even do all that? Because they're not doing anything else. That's all they're doing. They're looking at you and they're criticizing you. They're doing all that. Why would I allow that person to have that voice in my life? I saw this interview with somebody this one time. I'm not going to mention it was, but he was speaking about stuff and laying it out. He was laying, laying, laying some things. And someone put up a tweet and, and said, 
about someone saying, I've lost all respect for you, and you will never hold anything over in my life. It was a total stranger for everything. And this person responded and said, well, what made you think that I would care about what you think? <laughs> I don't even know you. You don't know me. I don't know if that's a qualified opinion or not. Now, here's the thing. There's a difference in critiquing. I have people that I... I mean, I send stuff to look at my sermon. What does that look like? Look at this that I lay out. Please proofread this. Please check this. We strategize the team. There's a healthy process of critiquing, right? But it's with people that are with you. My board, I see. They've invested themselves. They're saying, we're here. We tithe. We give in offerings. We're committed. We're gathering together. When a board member comes up and says something to me, I listen. Why? They're in the field with me. But so many times, we let all these other criticisms come in, and we give it so much weight. Don't allow people who have no investment in your life to have that voice and that influence in your life. You don't know their motive. See, remember, Jesus and his disciples, they taught people not to be surprised by this. But he taught them to actually expect it, and that when they, that when they expect this attack, that this is normal. And as it relates to the gospel of Christ, this is normal for us. When you stand for the truth of God, the truth of God is a threat to the lies of the enemy. It's different. When you stand up for God, you're doing something different. There's truth. There's a standard there. And it will always be attacked. It is normal. Look at how Jesus responded to his critics. To those who were critics in that way, he responded quickly and decisively. I mean, look what he said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. When he looked at them, he said, he said, don't do what they do because they do not practice what they preach. He was very quick. He was very decisive with them. He's like, you should know better. You know the laws. You know how it should be, but you're not practicing it. You use it as a weight for other people. And so he warned people about them. In areas where the disciples went and they faced op- opposition, in Matthew 10, it, Jesus said, shake the dust off your sandals. But with people that came, and they may or may not agree with them, but they were really inquiring. You know what Jesus said to them? I'm going to your house today. We're going to sit down today. We're going to have dinner today. Get down there that tree. Let's have a conversation. Let's talk about this. Do you see the difference in that? Don't allow the 10% to keep you from the 90% that can be impacted by the love of Christ. Amen? That's only done through the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you that from experience. This is not about you muscling through. It's about you turning off things that you shouldn't be watching. And I'm not just talking about sin things. I'm talking about some of those things need to be turned off. And it's about turning on the voice of God, turning on the voice of the Holy Spirit. It's about going to your group. It's about having people you can have real conversations with. Like I said today, you talk to somebody, they said, man, I'm having a rough week. Let's get together. I'd love just to listen. I'm not going to go Dr. Phil on you. I'm just, I just, I'm just here to listen to you today. And then we'll pray. So how do we overcome compromise? As the worship team comes and as we respond to the word of the Lord, we need to know the truth. We need the whole truth and nothing but the truth. See, if we don't know the truth, if we don't own the truth, and I'm not talking about just a yes or no. I'm not talking about a list of stuff here. I'm talking about if we don't own this, if we haven't hidden the word of the Lord in our hearts, we can be easily swayed. We'll be like the person who built on the sand, right? The winds and the storms came and they were washed away. It's like, no, we need to be planted on the rock of Jesus Christ. 
And Jesus was clear in how we know this. We know this truth by knowing Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes except by me. Jesus is the doorway. We need to know him. That's why that first act of following Christ is total surrender. I let go of everything. It's interesting when Jesus talked about letting go, he was talking about all those close relationships. He wasn't saying mom and dad aren't important. He wasn't saying all those things aren't important. He was saying, no, you surrender every relationship to me. You let go of it all. We need to know the word of God. So many of the lies of the enemy that he throws at me, as he's speaking them, do you know what's rolling in my head? Scripture. (laughs) Very obvious lies. That's what Jesus did when he was tempted. Scripture, the word of God, it's a light unto our feet. It guides the path in front of us. We need to know it. But here's the other thing that we need to keep in mind. We need to know the body of Christ, the church. This is what we're doing right now. If all we do when we come here is just show up and leave and show up and leave and show up and leave and we're never engaging with something, this is just a building. (laughs) But when we show up and we know each other, when we worship God, standing, sitting, laying down, whatever, we're being changed. When, When there's an opportunity to pray, we pray. When there's an opportunity to confess, we confess. When there's an opportunity to forgive, we forgive. When there's an opportunity to connect with people, we connect with people. We have yet to fully realize what God will do in the life of a church that will fully commit themselves in that way. There's some pockets of it and seeds of it, but the opportunity is so great that if we would just do those, those simple things, just maximizing the time that you're here, and then just getting with people and saying, what is God doing in your life as you go through our community, as you go through the world, wherever you're going? Knowing the church, engaging with the church, encouraging each other, that, that word of coaching and helping each other. It talks about in Hebrews. Any idea what would happen? Walking in unity. Not only will you be changed, but when we're a community that confesses and forgives and walks in unity and we're working hard, do you know how many people are looking for a community like that? Where they can come in just as they are. That's why we say this is a place you can belong before you believe. If you disagree with everything that I said today, know what I was what I would say to you is welcome. (laughs) Welcome. If you disagree with everything, welcome. I pray that as you walk in my life, as you walk with us, not in my life, in the life of Jesus, (laughs) I pray that as we walk together, you will see the love of Christ, but you are welcome. That's how I was changed. Somebody invited a little chubby kid (laughs) and walked with him and discipled him. That's what discipleship is. Look at Peter. Peter was messed up, and Jesus pursued him. If we know Jesus, we know his word, and we never neglect opportunities to gather together. And we really embrace that. What a powerful life of change, amen? Wherever you are, amen. Lord, speak, your servants are listening. Lord, we don't want to be given to compromise, but... Lord, we know that the enemy is always seeking who we can devour, but we say in the name of Jesus, you have no authority here, Satan. I pray you would rise up within us, oh God. That we would be men and women, children filled with your power, filled with the presence of God, laying it all down.
quick to confess, quick to forgive, quick to walk in ways of reconciliation with you and with each other in every way. Unify us by your spirit as we now respond. Do your work, we pray. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've done, all that you're doing. We thank you for the things that you are starting and beginning, that new life here today. You deserve all the glory. You deserve all the glory. Lord, I pray that as a body of believers, Lord, that we would, we would take on that all in, that laying it all down before you. Releasing, decreasing of ourselves so that you may increase in our lives in this community, both as a church in Shoreline in Seattle and the world. Do your work. And God, I, I pray for us, Lord, that when we hit those those times that we're tempted, those times that we're tired. Lord, that we wouldn't hear suck it up buttercup, but that we would, but that we, we would reach out to a community, to people, to friends who care, those who can listen. I pray in your name, Lord, in your name. There's times when people come to you to pray and there's times you're like, I'm, I'm gonna go pray with somebody. And um, one of the things that I was talking about with someone as we were praying is they're talking about that sometimes so, that when someone gets knocked down, they just need someone to just get down with them and go, I'm going to be here with you for a while. Because see, when someone's knocked down, it's not, it's not always a position of failure, it's a position of healing, right? When you go to a hospital, you're laying in a bed until you can be healed enough. Maybe the Lord's calling you this week to go to somebody like that and to go, I'm, I'm just going to kneel down and be with you. I'm going to pray with you for healing, however long that takes. If the Lord chooses to do it an instant or if it's like Paul when he said, I've got a thorn in my side. Trusting him, amen? Amen. So Lord, I pray that you would lead us today, this moment, this week. Lord, reveal to us people that, God, they've just been knocked down. Lord, I'm praying for healing, that you would help us to have that patience just to just to be with them, not to feel like we need to say anything or do anything, but we just need to be your ambassadors. Lord, we need to be men and women, children of God, willing to sit with people, listen, pray with, pray for, willing to laugh, willing to cry. Do your work in us, we pray. And everyone said together, amen, amen. This is our benediction, our benediction. Let's say this together. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace.